I am told that there were over 500,000 people who came into Nashville for the three-day NFL draft. And, uh, of course, they shut off the streets at Broadway. It was crazy. Now, how many of y'all braved that situation and went downtown to try to get on camera? You went downtown. Oh, Sharon put her hand down. I didn't try to get on camera, but I did go down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. But guess what? Uh, it's one thing to go to the draft. It's another thing to be drafted. And we've got to give God glory for the son of David and Rachel Knox, who was drafted by the Buffalo Bills, Dawson Knox, tight end, third round, Buffalo Bills. Oh, not every mama and daddy can say that one, you know. Yeah, my son was drafted today, and not with the military, but with the Buffalo Bills. Hey, man, that's awesome. And then um, more good news. Last week, Strong Tower got two new grandparents, first-time grandparents. Little Aria was born, and uh, we have proud grandparents, Aubrey and Tony Smith. Woo! How y'all doing? Y'all all right? Aubrey always smiles, but you really been smiling, man. Oh, and then Tony showed me a picture, and I'm glad you gave me the background to the picture because your wife said once you held the baby, you wouldn't let nobody else hold the baby. But he told me he, he had a delay before he could hold the baby. But once he was able to hold the baby, he wasn't like, is she up there with you now? You all right? <laughs> Amen, brother. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. Uh, did anyone get a new job this past week or month? Just raise your hand. Sister Felicia, you got a new job. Amen. Amen. And you have been praying and taking tests, and God provided. Isn't he good? Amen. Anybody else get a job this week? All right. Anybody else looking for work this week? You looking for? Okay. All right. Well, this sister here can testify. He's an on-time God. Amen, amen, amen. And what that is? The prayer request card. Amen, amen. All right. And then um, we have a birthday tomorrow. Um, our executive pastor, Jerry Lewis, turns, I don't know how old you turn. But that's a good-looking black man right there. Ain't that right, Donna? Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! Amen. Yeah! G-Money! <laughs> yeah! We love you, man. We love you. Amen. Amen. And uh, speaking of godly men, on uh, tomorrow night and Tuesday night, um, Dr. Tony Evans, is uh, he's having a movie go across the country for two nights called Kingdom Men Rising, just for two nights. And uh, it's sold out in Cool Springs, the uh, AMC Theater, 
but we were able to secure a few tickets for that. I think the men's ministry have been notified about it, so some of you went and got tickets. But I have about five tickets left uh, that are free. If you want to go, make sure you see me, email me, come up to me so I can make sure I save a ticket for you because we're going on Tuesday night, 7 o'clock. Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, men from Strong Tower. And by the way, the, uh, the game day that the men put on yesterday, I want to thank the brothers for blessing us, just allowing us to have fun in the house of God. We ate well, played a bunch of games. Now, I, I don't play spades with church members. That, that, that's been my rule. Because spades can get a little, you know, when you're cutting people. and So I, I don't play spades with church folk. I don't know who, who won the spades tournament. Who won? Who won? You won the spades tournament? You think? Okay. All right. Did they give you a prize? What? We slipping. Where's Randall? We're supposed to give prizes. So, Ritz, uh, you're supposed to get a prize. You're supposed to get a prize. And where's your partner? Is she here today? Okay, and let's see, y'all beat Randall and Rick. Rick, what happened, man? What happened, bro? <laughs> Keep it moving. Move on, Elder Paul. Okay, all right. But you look good today, though, bro, but, but you got set yesterday. All right. <laughs> well, let me pray for us as we uh, shift to the Word. My desire today is that uh, after the Word goes forth, I can ask my elders and their wives to come. Just pray over anyone who may need prayer today. So uh, let's look to the Lord. Father God, thank you that we had a moment to worship you collectively, corporately, communally in your house. We need you, and we all need each other. And it's so good that you not only receive our praises, but you inhabit our praises. You give us the joy that we need. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us joy. Many times it's joy unspeakable. It's joy that makes no sense. You just give us this peace that surpasses our understanding. You know how to give us power. Power to live for you. Power to forgive. Power to love our enemies. Oh God, you give us hope that Things can turn around. Things can and will get better because you're God and you're good. Thank you for long suffering. Some of us are going through some painful trials. And Lord, you're developing character, Christ-likeness in us. And we thank you again that we're not by ourselves. You are with us. You are in us. And you're rooting for us. Thank you that you don't give up on us. As we come to your word, Lord, I'm asking that all of us would have ears to hear what you want to say today. Thank you for giving me a word from your word. I pray, God, you'd help me teach it and preach it to your people. Help us all to hear what you're going to say from Holy Scripture today. And let us go out there in the world and be witnesses for you, unashamed of Jesus or his gospel, living for you because this, home, this world is not our home. Thank you, Lord, that we are just ambassadors here passing through because our citizenship is above. Thank you for this great gospel story, the greatest story ever told from the greatest God, the only God there is, who sent his son Jesus. Thank you, God. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.
I want to begin by reading Romans 15:4 today, just to remind us of the series that we're in on the superabounding grace of God. We took a couple of weeks away from it as we went through Passover season and uh, Resurrection Day, but I just want to take us back because we're going to be spending several Sundays talking about men and women in Scripture who made many mistakes, and yet God's grace was there for them, and God's grace is here for us when we make mistakes. Romans 15.4 says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Because when we make mistakes, when we fall, when we fail, sometimes we become hopeless. We think we're the only one. Um, but we're reminded that, no, uh, we're not the only one who's fallen, who has failed God and who has let themselves down. And when we read the Bible, we see men and women who went through similar circumstances because there's nothing new under the sun. And we see not only the mistakes they made, which remind us of the mistakes we make, but we also see, thankfully, God's grace overwhelming the situation and making crooked paths straight. So today, um, to introduce the sermon that we may be encouraged by God's grace, I have a video clip that I'm going to show you. Now, this video clip, for some of you, it will be the first time you've ever seen it. For others of you, it will remind you, you've seen this before. And um, whether you've seen it or not, or you've never seen it, or rep if you've seen it or you haven't seen it, it may trigger some emotions in you, um, emotions that you may have suppressed, emotions that will bring back memories, things you don't like to talk about. But I believe God is a healer. And for us to get well, we have to admit that there is some pain. Others of you will see this, and it may not mean anything, but you may know someone in a similar situation. So would you please play? Well, <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, some business came up I got to handle. So we're going to have to put a, our trip on hold. You understand? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, cool. that's cool. Just for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little longer. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Look, I'll, I'll call you next week and we'll iron out the details, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, yeah. It was great seeing you, son. You too, Lou. Yeah, um... I'm sorry, Will. <laughs> you know what, actually, this works out better for me. You know, the Slimmies of Summer come to class wearing next to nothing, you know what I'm Will, saying? Will, it's all right to be angry. Hey, why should I be mad? I'm saying, at least he said goodbye this time. I just wish I hadn't wasted my money buying this stupid present. I I'm sorry, I, you know, if there was... Something that I Hey, you know do. what? You ain't got to do no, nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm going to be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty good at it, too, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? Did. Got through my first day without him. 
right? Mm. I learned how to drive. I learned how to shave. I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a card. I ain't need him then, and I don't need him now. Will. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm having me a whole bunch of kids. I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? How come he doesn't want me? How come my father doesn't show love to me? The character, Will, Will Smith, had what psychologists and counselors call, call, excuse me, a father wound. A father wound. And a father wound is the deep emotional pain and trauma caused from bad experiences with your birth father. Say that again. A father wound is the deep emotional pain and trauma caused from bad experiences with your birth father. And this wound affects sons, as well as daughters. There are people today who are struggling as adults because of wounds that were inflicted upon them when they were children. And they're struggling with how to make things work in relationships and they don't know why there's this place of animosity, bitterness, anger, frustration, doubt, discouragement. Nine times out of ten, a good counselor will take you back, take me back to find out how did this wound occur. They'll take you back so that you can come forward. Because a father wound can be caused by several factors, such as absence. An absent father can cause a wound to his children. And that absence can come in the form of divorce, when parents divorce. And some of you can testify to that, that when your parents divorce, you lost contact with one or both of your parents. And many times it's the father. Absence can also come by death, a circumstance beyond your control, and your father passes. And some of us have never recovered from that because we weren't ready for dad to leave. And that has even caused us to be upset or angry with God for taking him away. Another kind of absence is separation when mom and dad may not be divorced, but they're separated or they never got married and they're separated. They don't have a relationship. So some of us have never seen our father. We've never met our fathers. 
So there's this absence. Also, absence can come from incarceration. Your father does something uh, to be placed in jail. And so because of that, there's an absence. He's been separated from you and you from him. Or work. You have a father who's always traveling with his job, maybe in the military, and gets transported back and forth to different bases around the country, or does construction or uh, architectural jobs, and it takes him away for weeks at a time, and so resentment can build up. But there's also adoption, where children who have been adopted, many of them will come to a place where they will begin to ask questions about why their biological parents, why their fathers put them up for adoption. And for some, again, that's a real wound. They may not be able to get all of the answers to their questions, which may cause the wound to go even deeper. And it may cause the adopted child not to see the family that has embraced them because they're focusing so much on the one that put them up. And so it causes a wound, or there is a wound, once again, from just sheer abandonment. Father gets up and he leaves the family with no warning, no justification. So there's absence, but there's also abuse that can cause a wound from our fathers. Uh, Mental abuse, playing mind games with us, verbal abuse, cussing us out and calling us all kinds of names putting us down, never being positive. There can also be physical abuse where the father takes out anger and frustration on his children. And rather than disciplining properly and under control, the father disciplines in rage. Father may even use fists and other objects while disciplining. And there's hardly ever any nurture or encouragement. So there's physical abuse. Some of you grew up literally fighting your fathers. Every Friday night or Saturday night, you and your father had a physical fight. Or there was sexual abuse from your father. So, and that opens up a Pandora's box of emotions and thoughts that confuses children because the one who should be protecting and providing is molesting and taking advantage of. And then there's spiritual abuse. Some of us grew up with fathers who abused us spiritually, um, using the Bible as a weapon to bring guilt, manipulation, and condemnation. And so it's hard for you to even see God as a loving parent when you look at God through your father. And many people have said, I don't want anything to do with God because of how my father has represented God to us. There's spiritual abuse, but then there's also substance abuse that can inflict a father wound, alcohol, drug abuse, so many things. Children are delicate. Children can be hurt very easily. And then there's uh, withholding. When a father withholds love. A lot of times a father does that because he never received love from his own father. And he doesn't know how to give love because he's never received love. Or the way that he disciplines is the way that his father disciplined him. So there's this cycle of depravity in the family. 
of generational curses. The father withholds affection. You don't remember him hugging you. You don't remember him saying, I'm proud of you. You don't remember your father kissing you on the cheek, blessing you publicly, encouraging you privately, withholding acceptance and withholding proper discipline, withholding affirmation. You never felt like anything was good enough. So these are things that contribute to a father wound, and all of us have some sort of father wound because none of us have had perfect fathers. You may have had a good father, but your father isn't perfect, and your father may have unintentionally wounded you in various ways. One of my fondest memories, not fondest, one of, one of the things I remember most about my dad as far as a way in which he hurt me. Again, my dad was an awesome dad who was in heaven with Jesus. But before he came to Jesus, my dad abused alcohol. And there would be times that alcohol would do the talking when I knew that wasn't my father. And there would be things he would say to me under the influence of alcohol that he would never say to me when he was not drunk. And I remember those things. And if a child doesn't always remember what a father says, that child will always remember how that father made him to, to feel. And that's the wound. That's the pain. And for those of us who offer our fathers, we need to recognize that even with the best intentions, we have wounded our children. So all of our fathers have wounded us, and if you've a, you're a father, we've wounded our children. Hopefully, again, unintentionally. But there are fathers who have wounded their children intentionally. Men who could have made better choices but chose not to make those choices. So we're all wounded. We're all hurt in some way. And if we're fathers, we've wounded and we've hurt our sons and our daughters. I'm here to let you know that when I open up the Bible, there's hope for us. Uh, we're not by ourselves. David, Israel's greatest king. Some of you may not know this. But I believe he was wounded by his father. And I want us to look at that today, and I want to talk on the subject of the mistake of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. He made some mistakes with his son. But as we're going to see today with the grace of God, that although his father made many mistakes with his youngest son of eight boys, God showed up in grace before the infractions, during the infractions, through the infractions, and after the infractions. Because whatever you're going through today, if I've conjured up some thoughts where it's hard for you to even pay attention now because you're going down memory lane, I'm going to ask you to come back, get some word. God's got a message for you today. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. A familiar story, but I'm going to give it to you in a way today that may not have the traditional, typical Western lens, but give us a biblical understanding, the context, the culture from a Near Eastern perspective 
Help us see, God. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Just a brief backstory. Saul is the first king of Israel. But Saul has become disobedient to God. And Saul was given a very simple order. And that was when he was to go to war with the Amalekites, he was to destroy everything that belonged to the Amalekites. He didn't do that. He kept the king alive, and he took the sheep, the best sheep and oxen for himself. And when Samuel arrived on the scene, God had told Samuel, I'm grieved that I've made Saul king. He's not obedient. So Samuel shows up and Saul says, I have done the will of God. And Samuel said, well, if you did the will of God, why do I hear sheep in the background? Oh, we, we, we pulled those aside to make a sacrifice to the Lord. That's not what the Lord told you to do. Then Saul deflected and said, but you, really, it was the people. The people, they really made me do it. I thought you were the king who told the people what to do. And that's when Samuel had to say to Saul that God desires obedience more than sacrifice. You think you're going to sacrifice these animals? God wants you to obey. Because of this last incident, the kingdom has been taken from you and given to someone else, a man after God's own heart. And so in chapter 16, after Samuel has mourned for Saul, but you never see Saul mourning about his own decisions and issues. God shows up with a word. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. So this Elder Paul, it's time to go on. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So God says, here's the direction. I'm giving you some of the details, but not all the details. The direction is it's time to stop crying and it's time to move on because the nation must carry on. I've already chosen a king. He's in Bethlehem. He's one of Jesse's sons. I won't tell you which one because you still got to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm giving you directions, not every detail. When we're trying to walk with God and understand his will, very rarely does he give us the details but he will give us the direction because the details won't come until we're obedient to moving on the information and revelation that he's given us. So as we start moving, his word becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He steers moving Christians like we steer moving cars. You can't stay parked and say, I don't know what God's will is. Act on the known will of God until the unknown will of God finds you. So Samuel said to God in verse 2, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Look how low this man has gotten, that he is willing to kill a prophet because he knows that the prophet has said to him, somebody's going to take your place. 
You're not going to rule until you just die of old age. No, God has taken the kingdom from you. And knowing how narcissistic, maniacal, and evil Saul was, Samuel, who was no slouch spiritually, he said, this dude might kill me if he knows I'm going to anoint another king. So God says, here's how we're going to do this. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Because, again, Samuel wasn't, he, man, he, he was a powerful man of God. They didn't know if he was coming to bring judgment on the town in the name of God. But he said, I've come peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated or sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So there's no temple in Jerusalem just yet. So the Jewish communities would have sacrifices and worship times where they lived to worship God. And sometimes they would go up to what is called high places, and they would have a level place, and they would offer a sacrifice to God. And we know in time they would also offer sacrifices to false gods. But there were also moments where there was pure worship on the hills. And so there's this service the sacrifice to the Lord that's going on. Samuel says, Jesse, I'm consecrating you and your sons. And so we see and pick it up now in verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Stop and pause. Samuel is on a mission to anoint one of Jesse's sons. The first one, the oldest, comes, and he's a, a handsome person. And Samuel looks at him and says, surely he's the one. But then the Bible says in verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So even a prophet can be off sometimes. Even a prophet can jump the gun. God says, no, he's not the one. Now watch this, though. He spoke it. He said, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. So the oldest son, and according to that culture, should get the inheritance, should get the, the, the biggest blessing, if you will. So it's assumed that Eliab is going to be anointed by Samuel. So Samuel speaks it, but God says, pull that back. He's not the one. Didn't you learn with Saul? Because Saul was a head and shoulders above everybody. He looked good as king. But I'm not going after that outward stuff. God says, we're dealing with some heart issues because I'm looking for a man who has a heart after my own heart. Single ladies, don't let the fact that he looks good cause you to make a bad decision. I just put that in for free. All right? There's got to be more than the outward package going on. Same for you, brothers. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. 
in Proverbs, it talks about what good is putting an earring in the, the nose of a pig. It's still a pig wearing jewelry. I ain't going to touch that. I'm going to let the Bible stay with that. <laughs> Some of y'all are not going to get into relationships because of what the outward package looks like. And you're going to miss God. But anyway. Oh, man, that would be fun to mess around with, but I got to keep going. Verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So they're at this consecration. The community is there. They know something is going down. Samuel is there with the horn, with the oil. He's ready to put a king in place, or at least to anoint him until the office opens up. Jesse is known in the community for having all these upright sons, but not one of them is chosen. Which causes Samuel to say to Jesse in verse 11, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. So if they're up on a mountain in a, in a, in a cleared-off place for the sacrifice, and Samuel's like, well, is this it? And Jesse then says, yeah, there's one more, the youngest, and there he is. You see him down there. He's got the sheep. So now the Bible says, and Samuel said to Jesse, sin and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for he is the one, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, watch this, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So my question is, why did Jesse not invite David to that ceremony in the first place? He only brought seven of his sons, not the eighth one. Why did he overlook his youngest son? I'll tell you what I've always heard, and that is David was the youngest he wasn't old enough to be considered to be king and anointed by the prophet Samuel. He, he wasn't old enough, so that's why dad left him out there. That's what I always heard. But I don't believe that's correct. Because David is old enough to have responsibility taking care of sheep. David is old enough to even kill a lion and a bear that come against the sheep. This ain't no little boy here. He had a reputation in the community of being skillful with the harp. He had a reputation in the community of being a man of valor and a man of war. People knew who this young man was. We don't know his age specifically, but he wasn't a little boy. And then we'll see later in chapter 17, he's old enough to take supplies to the battle line of the war between the Philistines and the Jews. So he's old enough to do all that. So I don't accept the fact that, oh, he just was not old enough. There's something else going on. Because this man, 
to be overlooked by your father, left out by your father. And not only that, watch this, he's anointed in the midst of his brothers. And the oldest brother, Eliab, thought he was going to get the anointing from the initial words of Samuel. Then that's pulled back. Then the youngest, who wasn't even included, gets brought in. Then he gets anointed in front of all of his brothers, who we're going to read some things about those brothers, especially the oldest one. But I'm still asking myself, why was David overlooked and not included by Jesse? Let's go to chapter 17, verse 12. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. Next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Because what we're not going to be able to get into right now is that after David gets anointed, God begins to open up doors for him. Saul is having schizophrenic issues. He's, he's extremely just, you know, I don't even want to say bipolar because that, that would not be, that, that could be disrespectful to people who are dealing with bipolar. This man went from extremes. But here, here, here's the thing. He was oppressed by demons, by demons. So his men said, we got to find some way to soothe this man. And they said, hey, th th there's a kid that plays the harp skillfully, David. So they asked Jesse. The king has asked, can your son come and play the harp? David comes, plays the harp. And as David plays the harp or as David worships, the demons depart. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Resist the devil and he will flee. The, the devil can't hang around worship where God is exalted and not man and things and issues and problems in him. God is worship. The devil would flee. But David was still so responsible that even though he had this job, this government job, he would still go back and take care of his sheep. Very responsible young man. So he's home, and his father says, I want you to go out and check on your brothers. Watch this. Look at verse uh, 16. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So, so, so David went and, and he brought supplies. So we see Jesse as a considerate father, at least with these three oldest. Go take care of them. Now, now my question is, though, you just saw your son get anointed by a prophet to be the next king. You see God open up a door for him to come into the palace and actually play an instrument to help the king. Why is it that you still treat this son like a lackey? Why you still treat them like, 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 look, look, go serve them. Because if it had been Eliab who was anointed, I hardly believe 
that Jesse would have been telling Eliab to do mundane things. Here's another thing. Three boys in the army. What about the other four? Can't them rascals take some rations to the front line to feed the other sons? Why are you treating David like he's just yesterday's meatloaf? What, what, what? Why are you treating him like Cinderella? Why are you playing them like this? There's something deep going on here. So look at verse 28 of chapter 17. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, David was asking questions. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Every kid that's younger gets picked on by his older brothers, right? What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. So he's treated like Cinderella. Strong Tower, with my remaining minutes, I got to ask you another question. Not only why did Jesse treat his son, his youngest son, like this, who should be the son of his strength because he's an old man. And when an old man can have a, a baby again, you know, you, you ought to be happy. I mean, when we look at the patriarchs, it was Jacob who exalted and favored Joseph, the youngest son. So, so, so what, what's going on here? But here's the question, another question. I want to know, where was David's mother in all of this? Because when we read the Old Testament, we see Sarah having some words for Abraham. We see Rebecca having some words for Isaac. We see Rachel having some words for Jacob. Like, where's the dialogue between Jesse and his bride? Where is she? And who is she? Who is David's mother? Why is she absent from the text? The Bible doesn't tell us who she is or where she is. And to me, this is very odd. And this is something we should take note of. Why? We know who David's father is. 25 times he's called the son of Jesse in the Bible. We know who his father is. We know who his brothers are. We even know some of their names. We know who his enemies are. We know who his wives are going to be. We know who David's friends are. We know who David's children, they're all given names. But you can't find the name of his mama in the Bible. And I'm here to say we need to, again, take deep note of that. I need you to go on over to Psalm 51. Because Jesse is clearly David's father. But my question is, who is his mama? I'm trying to understand why this father is mistreating his son, leaving him out and not seeing that his son was king potential to begin with. Because Jesse said, consecrate yourselves, get ready. I'm anointing one of your sons. You don't include the youngest because is it as John Maxwell says in the book, Running with Giants, that David was not seen as king material? 
But even after he gets anointed, you don't treat him like king material. There's something deeper going on. Psalm 51 is when David writes this, this man, this beautiful song after he has slept with Bathsheba, who is another man's wife, and kills her husband. And he goes and he lives in sin for well over a year until Nathan, the prophet, comes to him. And Nathan tells a parable to set David up, to bring him into the story. And he basically says to David, you are the man. You've sinned. And David said, I've sinned. We may talk about this mistake next week and how God's grace still showed up for David. But David wrote this song. Sometimes people who are worship leaders, songwriters, preachers, some of our best stuff comes out of pain. Sometimes we see God more clearly when we need his grace more surely. And he writes Psalm 51. And, 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 and you don't have to have committed adultery to love Psalm 51. We sin. And if we don't commit the physical act, many of us commit the mental and emotional act. But we all sin, and Psalm 51 will encourage your soul. David writes this thing, but he says in verse 5, he says uh, in Psalm 51, verse 5. You guys got Psalm 51? All right, well, let me read that to you. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. In American seminaries, in a Western approach to the Bible, that verse has been used to teach on the doctrine of sin called hamartiology or total depravity, that we're born in sin. Okay. But I believe that's, again, that, that, that's going after a system of theology, systematic theology. And we miss the spirit of the text. This man who had just committed adultery is confessing his sin to God. And it could be that he just did something that his father did too. Don't, 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 don't turn the station. Please don't turn the station. Because he says... In sin, my mother conceived me. Now, all of my children have been born in wedlock. They were conceived in love. They were not conceived in sin because the marriage bed is undefiled. So any other sex outside of sex between a husband and a wife, according to Hebrews 13, 4, is defilement and sin. So any other bed for sex besides the marriage bed between a husband and a wife is sin. So why would he say, my mother who's married to my father conceived me in sin? Mm -mm. You don't say that. People who are conceived in sin are born out of wedlock. Still with me? David is saying, this is not an excuse for what I've done wrong. This is not a justification for what I've done wrong, but it is a reality about my situation. 
My mother conceived me in sin. So this may explain why Jesse did not include David with his other boys. Because he looks at David as scorn, as being ashamed of what he did, a mistake that he made. And he projects the guilt and the condemnation that he feels onto his youngest son. That's why we say to children who have been born out of wedlock, your parents may have made a mistake, but you are not a mistake. I wish Christians could get a hold of this one. Because Christians so often condemn the child that was born in fornication as they condemn the parents who committed the fornication. The child had no say over being born in that moment. But we believe Psalm 139, the Lord knits the child in the womb. Church can be so condemning. I remember growing up in church where the church would parade the woman before the church that got pregnant. But just like in John chapter 8, where is the dude that got the woman pregnant? David said, in sin, my mother conceived. So this may explain. Now, where I'm getting this theory from, not only as I'm looking at Scripture, and I got more for you, Jewish tradition, which has been recorded in these uh, volumes called the Talmud, speak of these things about David. In other words, Jewish rabbis over centuries, they discuss, they give commentary to the Torah. Those things get recorded. And just like we read commentaries, Jewish people would read the Talmud, the commentary. And in the commentaries, they're trying to explain these verses. And in those uh, Jewish men's mind, they would give these different theories of why David said what he said here. But not only that, not only that, there's more. This may explain also, listen, Strong Tower, why David's brothers treated him with such contempt. Psalm 69. Because if dad treats David with contempt, the other boys are too. And they gang up on him. So in Psalm 69, oh man, I missed one. I missed one. I got to say this one. I'll go five minutes over. Y'all be all right. Because I ain't, I ain't here preaching to make you holler. That, that's been gone from my life. I'm here to equip and to teach. And I'm trying to help somebody today. I'm just trying to help somebody. So I'm taking my time because this is serious. Psalm 2710. Listen to what David says. When my mother and father forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. He's just not saying that to say that. He's writing from his heart, his pain. I feel forsaken by my father and my mother. But here's the good news. I look beyond my father and my mother, and I see my heavenly father, who never fails, who won't leave me or forsake me, who won't shun me, who, who is not ashamed of me. But in Psalm 69, you may have never seen this. I didn't really see this until I was studying this week. Verse 7, David says, because for your sake I have borne reproach, Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers. 
and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Then in verse 19, David says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for my comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. We jump immediately and we apply this to Jesus, and we should, while he's on the cross. But the idea here from the Talmud is that David's brothers so disrespected him that they would prank him and joke him. And rather than giving him water when he was thirsty after coming in from being a shepherd, they would give him vinegar. And they laugh. So this young man is facing rejection from his father, lack of support, for, and which may explain why his mother didn't speak up for him. Because Jesse no longer has a relationship with her. She may have just been a moment. But he takes the boy in. But the boy is just, he's not really a part of the family. And again, he's projecting his shame onto his son. Strong Tower, this is a dysfunctional family. But keep reading the Bible, there's dysfunction everywhere. David's story is similar to Christ's story. What do you mean? Jesus' brothers didn't respect him either. In John 7, verse 5, they joked him. And not only that, Jesus, according to John 8, 41, don't miss it. He was accused of being born in fornication. This virgin birth stuff wasn't hidden. Who's your daddy? I know Joseph is like, they say he's your stepdaddy. Who the daddy? Oh, the Lord is your daddy? Yeah, right. A Roman soldier is your daddy. So another reason we will reject this Messiah, because we don't know who his earthly father is. So they said to Jesus, we were not born in fornication. So if David is a picture of Christ, it's not far-fetched to think that David wasn't born in adultery. There are people who have families that their family don't know about. I know, I, know, I, know, I know I'm coming down your street. I'm sorry. But you find out later that your father had another family. He had other kids that you just meeting as an adult. You find out at a funeral or something. So don't think this stuff can't happen. This stuff went down. But yet there's God. Because this may be, again, similar to your story. But through it all, David discovered God to be a faithful father to him. Yes, it's possible that Jesse committed adultery with a nameless woman. Somebody would say, Pastor, the Bible don't say that. Well, the Bible says a lot of things, but it can't comment on everything. Okay? Again, this is, we're trying to have sound interpretation. We're not saying emphatically. We're saying that it's plausible and that it's possible. Otherwise, you tell me why Jesse treated him like that. Because this boy or this young man, he's being rejected by his father. He's being rejected by his brothers. Then he goes and he's rejected by Saul. 
Because Saul, who's supposed to be a father to him, is trying to kill him. Then he's rejected by Goliath, who curses him. And the only person who's there for him is God. Watch this, watch this. Help me, Holy Ghost. The dysfunction that David experienced, the father wound, may also explain why his relationships with other people had moments of struggle. Why? David struggled with women. He had a lot of wives, and he himself committed adultery even though he had a lot of wives. He had a lot of sexual outlets. He couldn't be faithful to one woman. These are just some of the things that come out of a wound from your father. Again, not trying to blame or make an excuse. It's just a reality. Hurt people hurt people who hurt people. Wounded people wound people who wound people. People who are in patterns say, I'll never do what my daddy did. You find yourself doing what your daddy did if you don't have Jesus to break the cycle. So he struck. And some of you, again, you're struggling. The sins of the fathers are visiting the children. He was a rolling stone. You're a rolling stone. He would go to any woman he could find. You open your legs for any man who finds you. But here's the thing. We can't dress the wound if we won't confess that there is a wound. We won't go to counseling. We won't get help. We keep trying to grit our way through. And, and we, something is broken in us. We're mad. We're angry. We're upset. We're resentful. And the poison shows up in every relationship. And we keep saying, what's wrong with me? And I just stopped by today with a word that God encouraged me to preach to say, don't focus on who broke you, and don't focus on your own brokenness. Focus on the one who can put your brokenness in order. That's real. That ain't, I'm supposed to say that. I know that to be true. You can make it. Because there's grace in the story. I got to tell you how, to, how there's grace in the story. There, there's dysfunction here. But there's grace here. There's always grace here. Sin is abounding, but grace superabounds. Pastor Chris, where's the grace? This man came from a dysfunctional family. His father may have been unfaithful. Pastor Chris, where's the grace? Here's the grace. God chose David, even though he knew David was in a dysfunctional family. God chose David to be king before the foundation of the world, even though God knew that David was in a broken family. Because God will call you to do something and to be something. That really, it doesn't matter what has been done to you. Because his grace is greater than those traumas, those tragedies, those issues. So that when he promotes as he heals and promotes, you know that the only reason why you're in your right mind and in this job and in this position is not because of your goodness, but because of his grace. 
which gives you hope to say, if he could do that for me, I come from a broken family, but look at my family. We're whole, we're well. We're not perfect, but we're blessed. That's how grace shows up. God chooses. God is not afraid of our dysfunction. Every person God calls and uses is in some way dysfunctional. So stop looking at other people saying, you know, man, I'm not like them. You don't know what they've been through. God's son, Jesus, came from a dysfunctional family in order to save dysfunctional people. So God has grace for the father wound. The wound is real. It's not your fault. But your healing is your responsibility. And no matter what bad things happen to you at the beginning that were beyond your control, grace has now shown up and it allows you to change the ending. Grace has shown up. So no matter what happened, it's, it's real. And you may need to go see somebody. You can come see me or Pastor Jerry, the elders, and we want you to do that because you got to talk about it. But there's only so far we can take you. You're going to need to see a licensed Christian therapist to help you get free so that when we talk about break every chain, it's just not a prayer, but it is a prayer matched with action and works, and you've been given tools to know how to address the pain from what your daddy did or did not do when you were growing up. He can make you into a new person because God's grace is greater than any wound. So for the Jesses under the sound of my voice, every father, don't exasperate your children. Repent of your sin. Admit that you're broken. Stop being so harsh and so mean. And don't you let your children have to one day ask a therapist why doesn't my father love me? Why doesn't my father honor me? When Jesus was baptized, his father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Even Jesus, God in the flesh, needed affirmation from his heavenly father. Where the father says, son, I love you. Matter of fact, son, I'm pleased with you. And everybody, y'all need to listen to him because he's a good preacher. Every child needs that daddy to say, I love you. I'm pleased with you whether you graduate summa cum laude, magna cum laude, or just come Lord. I I'm pleased with you. Whether you make 100000 or 50,000 or 20,000. I'm pleased with you. And guess what? My son, my girl, she's good at something. He's good at Every kid needs to hear that. So to the Jesse's under the sound of my voice, it's time for you to change. Stop saying that's the way my dad did it. Time for you to learn some new parenting. I don't care how old your kids are. They still need to hear that you love them. Amen. Call them. Finally, to the Davids in here and the Davettes. <laughs> forgive your fathers. Whether they ask for it or not, forgive them. They hurt you. Forgive them. Release them. And you still honor them. 
how did David honor his parents? Later in the Bible, it says that when Saul was chasing him, knowing that Saul might kill his parents, David took his mother and father who had forsaken him, and he put them into another town to protect his parents. He could have said, y'all going to get what y'all supposed to get. But let's go back. Man after God's own heart. A heart for God is a heart that gives mercy, even to people who let you down. So you honor them and ask God to continue to heal you of your wound. Let's stand for prayer, everybody. Amen, 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 amen. You got something to chew on? I don't have to have an altar call for you to go to the altar. Okay? You can go to the altar on your own because you're a priest of God. And you can get through to him because the son says, let me take you to my father. You don't need us. We wanted to pray over you today. And here's the thing. We're a family. We're not an event church. So if you need an elder or an elder's wife to pray with you, talk with you, please tap them on the shoulder. We are here for the, this is a marathon. This ain't no sprint. Again, this ain't an event. We all are getting healed together. Amen? But we will close with this verse from this song, Healer. Pray for your neighbor who you may know a little bit of his or her story. Pray for yourself. Ask God to bring healing. Then I'll close this in prayer. I believe you're my healer. I believe you me to pray for you. Come on. Come now. Come on. You need me. Come on. Come on. Yes, you can pray at your altar in your car and at home. Come on. Let me pray for you. Come on. Let me pray for you. Come on. Come on up. We're going to still have elders and wives put hands on you. Come on. Let's do this. We got time. 
I saw the Avengers the other night. It was three hours. I ain't go nowhere. We can take a couple more minutes for this. Come on, this is important. We need some yokes broken. We can't do this. His name is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Can't do nothing about what happened to you. God allowed it. He's using it. And grace changes the narrative now and the ending. How can you not serve a God like this? Forgive your fathers. Forgive yourself for holding grudges. Forgive them for hurting and breaking something in you that only God can repair. And he stands ready to repair. There's a calling on your life to do great things, to be a great person. He's using that so that you can help other people. He knew you were strong enough with him to handle it. He's redeeming everything about you. He has taken you up. You've been forsaken. You've been hurt. You've been let down. Promises have been broken again and again. He has not been there. When he was there, he was overly critical and judgmental. You don't know the last time he said, I love you. You can't remember when he hugged you, when he blessed you rather than asking you for money. But God says, I'm here today to heal. I'm here today to minister to you. You're not by yourself. You're not by yourself. I'm with you. And I will never leave you and I won't forsake you. Even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of disappointment, I'm with you. My son was mistreated by his brothers. He was accused of things he did not do. But his father stayed with him as he bore our shame and your shame. You're free today. But you've got to believe it. You've got to receive that. That he is your portion. That he is your healer. That the Lord is your deliverer. That he's more than enough. Father God, today we're coming to grips with what happened to us. We're coming to grips with things we didn't like. We're coming to grips, Lord God, with pain and hurt and disappointment and letdown. We're, we're coming to grips, Lord, with dark things and ugly things and shameful things. We're coming to grips, Lord, with the fact that we were put up for adoption. And we're, we're coming to grips today. We're tired of letting those things control who we are today. We're recognizing your sovereignty. That you were in control when things in my life was going out of control. And Lord, I'm going to extend the kind of mercy to my father who was imperfect, who was absent, whatever the I'm giving him mercy the way you give me mercy. I'm giving it to him, Lord, and I forgive him 
He may have been trying to do the best he could with what he had. God, I forgive him. I pray that you heal my heart. I know it's a process, Lord, but we can do this because you're walking with me. You're walking in me. Oh, yeah. Lord, would you break the generational curses in families? Would you raise up godly men? You said in the book of Malachi that before the Messiah comes, that, Lord, you would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. God, would you turn some hearts? Would you do some miracles? Would you bring some reconciliation? It may not be somebody else's relationship with their dad, but God, you want to do a unique thing. So bless these who have come. Bless those who wanted to come, but Lord, they're going to their car, they're going home. They're going to be thinking about this. Encourage their heart. And Lord, we're going to close this service the way we close every service. And even what we sang today, that you're able. I'm not able. She's not able. They're not able. But you are able to do what I have always thought was impossible to do. You're able to do the impossible. So now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or imagine, like healing us from this wound. We never imagined it. We suppressed, you can do it. Heal my heart. according to the power that is working within me. To him be the glory. Lord, we repent of being men-haters because our daddy was a bad man. We repent. We're sorry for cussing men and cursing men. Lord, forgive us of being so angry. Work in us. Work in us. Work in us by the power of the Holy Ghost, who's the comforter. Oh, God, work in us. Do a work that we cannot do. Work in us. Heal us, God. And we'll know we're healed when we can love the unlovable. We can forgive the one who hasn't asked for forgiveness. Where we won't take things out on our children because things were taken out on us. Lord, we're going to see a change in the name of Jesus. Grace is just superabounding. Grace, mercy, goodness, kindness, love is superabounding over my crap and the crap that was done to me. I trust you. Ain't nowhere else I can go. No other help I know. You got to do this. I want freedom. I want deliverance. And it's mine to have because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Break every yoke in the name of Jesus. Break the bondage in the name of Jesus. We're new creations in Christ. The old has passed. Behold, everything is being made new. You got new stuff for us. Thank you, Daddy. And all of God's people said, Amen. And all of God's people said, and all of God's people say, hug somebody, 
Come on, you gotta hug. Come on. We family. Hug, hug, hug. Encourage. God bless you. 